0: Peter Taylor, who uh, wrote this amazing book, you um, and he's an incredible, okay. incredibly elegant climate scientist. I've known him for a number of years, and he lives not far from here. <laughs> and uh, well with Peter. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm local. This is my town. And um, I thought I would dress up today uh, (laughs) because I've got this kind of split personality. Um, There are many people here who know me as a, I hang out with dancers, musicians, shamans. And and that's where I feel comfortable. (coughs) But I have this other personality which is actually a serious scientist. And this is my serious scientist suit. So, (coughs) I I thought I would explain why um, I can talk to you about climate. Um, Because I'm I'm a general ecologist. I have a couple of degrees from Oxford University. And I spent 20, 30 years as an environmental scientist. And environmentalists are getting a bit of a bad press these days because we all know why. Um, But without them, I mean... We were very active in the 70s and 80s. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, the Test Ban Treaty. I worked with the scientists who fought for that. Uh, Organic farming, that was unheard of. My research group in Oxford was the first uh, scientific group that took it seriously and we did a comparative study of organic and conventional farming. First of its kind. And then the World Wildlife Fund headhunted my top guy. (laughs) And he went to Geneva. For 12 years, uh, we focused on ocean pollution. So there's no more radioactive waste dumping in the ocean. And eventually, (coughs) with the help of Greenpeace and Greenpeace International, we stopped that. We stopped a lot of things in the 80s. The the oceans are a lot cleaner than, than they would be. Plastic, that wasn't on my watch. Somebody wasn't watching that carefully enough. But environmentalists did a good job. We also stopped something called the plutonium economy. Uh, I was living in Germany at the time and this was using fast reactor technology that actually breeds more fuel uh, so it will last forever. Uh, and plutonium would be used much like any other fuel in a power station except that one microgram is the lethal dose, it's highly toxic. and uh, One kilogram would give you maybe a hundred Hiroshima's so, then you've got to think about how do you control a technology like that? And you have to keep a lot secret from the people, especially those who might live near one of those stations. So, we broke all that open. And at that time, we could do computer modeling. We, we had teams, I had the most wonderful mathematicians and physicists to work with. People who'd left the system and they would, they would not get paid properly. So we put in a big shift and uh, r- roughly the middle of the 90s, I thought, "Oh, well, I've done enough. I want to do something more creative. So I involved myself in forest strategies, wildlife strategies and so forth. And then in 97, due to the breakdown of a relationship, I ended up here in Glastonbury. It was the only place that actually offered... Uh, accommodation for a guy on his own with two children and no money. So I really love this place. It's a real community. And there's one thing though that I've learned being here and that is as an Avalonian we have a different perspective on things. An Avalonian perspective. What is an Avalonian perspective on climate change, net zero, uh, the Green New Deal? In an Avalonian perspective, we understand science. There are scientists here. I'm one of them. Michael White is here. Um, We understand politics, science and politics. But we also understand soul, the world of spirit. And it was during the time that I was here and eventually I got back into consulting Uh, The work in Oxford had brought us right the way up to the UN. I've I've been in all the corridors of power, um, parliaments, uh, European Union, and including the UN. And I've seen science policy and how it works. So when I was here, I was much more interested in doing ecological work. But we did something that I thought was necessary. And uh, if I can get this to work, I'll come back to that in a minute, which, which was to visualize, because this was you know, 20 years ago, 23 years ago, the Royal Commission produced a plan for Britain to 2050 um, using, uh, bringing down fossil fuel use by half. At the moment, net zero, you want all, all of it to go, but then it was just half. And the Royal Commission produced a report, I was asked to review it. I thought, wow, all these biomass stations, we don't have the forests for that. Uh, the barrages, will lose all the estuaries, the wild places, turbines everywhere. And it's a godsend for nuclear power. They're going, oh, well, you know, we're carbon free. Um, so I thought, okay, I, um, I talked to my friends in the government, countryside agency particularly, and persuaded them that we needed to visualize at that time, consultants' reports were all little drawings on black and-white drawings on, on, on reports you wouldn't want to read them. So I said, "Well wow, we've got amazing technology these days to visualize landscapes. Take a look at you know, what the kids are doing with it. You know, it's all shoot em up games. Surely we could produce some software that we could imagine a landscape what we've got now and what it would look like in 2050 and amazingly I haven't seen Richard Fraser here but I thought well I haven't got the skills to do that really uh, I go look around and there was an, a, a little shop just down on North Oak Street called Visionscape just photocopies and stuff like that and there was a guy huddled up at the back there and I got chatting to him Turned out he was actually one of the best um, fantasy landscape designers in the world. Right? So we hooked up, we uh, put a proposal through to the government, they were very keen, they funded it, and I'll show you some of the results. And this is 20 years ago, and, and uh, we were leading edge. And that project finished around 2003, and I thought, my goodness you know, if we deal with, and this, by, at that time, as an ecologist, I had never studied the carbon dioxide models. I'd, I'd accepted them. That's the physicists. They know what they're talking about. What concerned me was what would happen to the landscape, communities that live there, and the wildlife, particularly the wilderness, the wild land. We don't have real wilderness here. But this is the global thing. And I thought, oh. And people in Friends of the Earth were coming to me and saying, look, Peter, we, we've got to sacrifice the landscape. You know, I said, the Hebrides, uh, Snowdonia, you know, all of these places. And uh, at that time, you know, wind turbines were just coming in. And I thought, how many do we need exactly? And how many biomass stations? And where's the biomass? So I thought, I'm going to study this. And I spent three years studying the science without funding. And I produced a report because I could see it's just going to destroy, but it's going to destroy the soul of the landscape. And so I finished around 2008. Um, I got on a plane. I went to see a a former head honcho of Greenpeace International. They know me, they knew me, they they weren't now the current directors, or then the current directors. And he was going, oh, Peter, you're usually right. I said, yeah, um, this carbon dioxide model is is the worst science I've seen. It's really bad. There's no cycles in the models. It's all linear. I can't believe it. Um, We were really good at entering models, criticizing them altering the parameters, and in those days we could do our own model. Now you need three million dollars to match uh, one of these models. So, I thought, okay, here's the results. The models are really bad and you cannot rely on them. And it's very difficult to work out, but I think we've got a lot more time than, than is made out. And he said, oh, you have to talk to our man in the UN. Said, Remy, Remy Pimenti is quite famous in Greenpeace, he, he was the main man for the whaling thing, you know, when they boarded the ships and everything. And he um, said, I, I, you have a man in the UN? But they were always the problem. And, uh, and he, he didn't, didn't get it, he was already a UN consultant on water issues, which is okay. But anyway, I thought I would list to, to you some of the things, because really, you can't tell. If I show you loads of graphs, like Ralph did, as a layperson, you can't really tell. And on the other side of this argument, you've got every single science institute in the world, all the academies, every country, every government, the European Commission and the United Nations, all telling you that we've got a serious climate, emergency. So why on earth would you listen to me? You know, it's like with all of that, well the issue is authority. And that's really the nub of it. And that's what I, what I want to say. Who really here has any idea of the mistakes that the UN scientists have made? They set up committees for everything. Do you remember a time when they used to x-ray pregnant women? Anybody? That's a long time ago. It took 20 years to stop that. There was a special UN committee and they defended the practice. Our models say it shouldn't have any effect. One single scientist, Dr. Alice Stewart, got the data. Well, here's my data. Those women who've been x-rayed have more leukemia in their children she was vilified. She was blocked everywhere. They tried to stop her publishing. That's when you saw the dark side of science. And the, the guy who opposed her, who's called Edward Pochin, he was a radio biologist and I used to be actually a member of the same institute as him. He was knighted Sir Edward Pochin. Alice Stewart, No honours whatsoever. Not a word in our parliament. That's just x-rays. CFCs, we nearly lost the ozone layer. Thankfully, the scientific world woke up in time and the UN complied. But what's not really told is CFCs were licensed in the first place by UN scientists. You can even find bits of writing which said, oh, we're dealing with... Because they used to clean the computers with it. It it evaporates, you know, and it doesn't leave any residue. And uh, this is the least toxic substance known to mankind was the CFCs when they were licensed for total, absolute, uncontrolled disposal. That was the UN. My particular area of expertise was controlling discharges and dumping. The UN licensed all of that. They licensed PCBs, which you can now find that toxic substance in virtually every whale, every dolphin, every seal. And it's an immunosuppressant, so they get more disease. It's a gender bender, which they only discovered much more later, and it's a a carcinogen. So now, you're not allowed to dispose it just anywhere but they licensed it and we still had to battle and say, look, certain substances that you think are harmless, they're uh, fabricated, they're not natural and they persist in the environment, you should not do it. We fought, I would say, 10 years to get clean production technology, stop the discharges, all of that. So I saw within that process how science works. The opposition, the people on the committees, particularly that committee uh, to do with radiation. Um, and I also saw some very brave people, men and women, professors within the academic world risk their careers to stand up, clearly a good friend of mine. <laughs> so it, it's dissident scientists and that process and their relation to authority that you need to look at. So I'll give you one very recent example, I got an invite very unusual for me, to the Royal Society of Medicine about two weeks ago. So i okay, oh, I had to find my suit. <laughs> and um, there were all professors there, and particularly one coming over from the United States. And they were there to look at 5G. But all the data is actually 4G. And The professor who I was talking to had been asked to sit on a special commission in New Hampshire. So a whole state, they were concerned. Everybody was going on about 5G. And, and so well, we'll, we'll set up our own commission and we'll get experts from the industry. You know, So we won't be biased, we'll be fair. And this was an expert from the industry. And when he saw the data, he went on the war path. And I couldn't talk to him. I tried to go and say thank you for coming over here, at your own expense, risking his academic career and I couldn't. I welled up because that's what happened to a former professor, Edward Radford, who came over and he led the battle against the x ray of pregnant women and various other things to do with the lower level radiation. So, Issues of authority. and What's going on right now? Well, Ralph did a really brilliant job of climate gate. That's 10 years ago. There's two very recent lessons last year. And one of them, actually, I've learned a lot from the whole COVID issue. Um, And I'm sure you have. And so, in fact, I I wrote an article in New View, uh, on COVID, climate, and conspiracy. Um, I know people who are completely obsessed and consumed by conspiracies. It's, it's like a, a, a psychological illness, really. Um, it's, it's, it's horrible. But conspiracies do exist, and, and I'll give you two examples. One is in, in the recently COVID. and it, I'm, I'm talking about this now because it's about science and it's about authority. Some people here, including me, knew that that virus had come from a lab right at the beginning. That's because we have a different kind of antenna, a different radar. And some people here may, may even actually be able to leave their bodies and go have a look. Um, The, a group of scientists, but first of all there was, oh, it, it, it is a, uh, a conspiracy theory that it's come from a lab. A group of scientists got together and wrote a paper in Nature, the top scientific journal. Twelve leading virologists or professors. It's absolutely implausible. We've seen the codes, we've looked at the, DNA, the RNA and everything. It, it's not come from a lab wash the conspiracy theory. And of course, all the governments listen to that, it's nature, and so forth. Very recently, I I actually wrote to all the party leaders and all the editors of all the newspapers, and I said um, one particular thing I wanted, and I asked the Prime Minister, I didn't get a reply to any of this, ask the intelligence services what they know. What are they advising you? Well I didn't get very far except that a former head of MI6 joined with a virology professor and they did a paper saying we think it could be coming from a lab. They got it through, not in the highest journals as long as they took out any reference to China. So. That, that paper was very, very influential. Now, in the United States, the United States Congress has subpoenaed all of the emails from that group of scientists and also their uh, intelligence services. All the email traffic. And there you see it. These scientists talking to each other and saying, we've got to quash this conspiracy theory. you know. It's It's quite likely that it came from a lab. Half of the people who signed that paper thought it did come from a lab. But we must not allow that to get out because it's not good for science. Pharmaceuticals, by the way, are the biggest investment opportunity on the planet today. And it's not good for our relations with China, and I'll come to that. Uh, In a minute. That's how science operates. I was asking a question uh, uh, maybe three or four months ago. Uh, I was trying to get a paper through the system. Uh, Over the last ten years, I've been working with a professor in the States, one of the ones who took the risks in the past in relation to ocean stuff. And there's a whole story about how I got together with him and We've produced four or five papers. I should be referring to one in a minute, which is very important. But I'm just losing my track here a little bit. Um, that climate issue that we were talking about, the, the hockey stick, that reappeared in the latest... IPCC report, the sixth report was published in 2021. And I'm, I'm aghast because it was heavily criticized when they first tried it on in 2001. It was called the hockey stick controversy, it was called Hide the Decline, there are, there are books about it. So it's like, how come it's back? And the world's paleoclimatologists who know about cycles are not standing up and going, hey. And then uh, my friend at Exeter University sent me a copy of a paper. And it was 22 paleoclimatologists, experts in cycles, people who cannot be ignored, saying, we're really disgusted in scientific language with what's been happening with this resurrection of the hockey stick. And then they spell it out the IPCC is biased, it selects the scientists for its committees, it selects the papers that it refers to, and it simply ignores a whole tranche of science. So luckily, when I was writing my paper, I didn't have to say that, I'm nobody. These guys are saying it. It cannot be ignored. So the upside of this is that science is beginning to move. And before, in the seventies and the eighties the UN admitted its fault of dilute and disperse for any toxic material, the ocean can take it and we've got loads of monitoring labs and we've got loads of scientists working on it and we said look at all the things that have gone wrong, we need the precautionary principle we need clean production technology that doesn't produce these toxics open up a clean production centre, which they did and then they even asked me to come in and help them redraft the legislation so that there wouldn't be any loopholes. So that is possible. And in 2019, as a result of our work with the US professor, who's a really distinguished uh, and very competent scientist, uh, we were invited to present. And I went over to Prague, it's a major conference, and um, presented our work. And I thought, oh, nobody's going to listen. But they actually said, would you do the keynote, please? I thought, wow, okay. And there was there the UN's top modeler. And I pinned him down in front of the conference. As, uh, and, you know, what you're saying or what I'm saying completely at, at loggerheads. They don't agree. And he said, yeah, we, we don't do cycles very well. Said, Why don't you tell the public that? And then we had lunch and he said, come to Princeton. Come talk to us. Then COVID came. By the way, it's not that easy for me to fly to Princeton. (laughs) uh, Even just going to a conference will cost you a grand. Five minutes? So none of this was funded by the oil industry, by the way. Most of the critical scientists I know really struggle for funding, and there's certainly no or oil industry money. Something that that um, film you saw talked about um, Al Gore and uh, what's happening there with the IPCC, carbon credits, the whole deal. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. And China is the key. The Kyoto Protocol, which I have a professor friend in the States who actually helped to draft it It got China special permission to to go through the roof with its carbon emissions. Meanwhile, the West gets constrained. Uh, You don't have to be an economist to know that there's a massive flow of industrial production to China. Why? No environmental regulations. Most of the population live in cell blocks, imprisoned social credit systems, surveillance, massive surveillance, no spirituality is allowed. Something like Tai Chi or Falun Gong, they're on you. That's necessary for the global financial system to operate. Every single technology that the Green New Deal wants to implement relies on rare metals mostly. Lithium's not so rare, but it takes a lot to mine it. China holds the monopoly in every single one. Not only that, it builds a lot of the turbines, it builds a lot of the solar panels, it builds 85% of the electric vehicles. That is where the jobs and the money is going, and this whole mesmer of climate emergency uh is allowing that. It's it's fueling that. It's not a racial issue, it's a human issue and it's a greed issue. Yes, it's a it's a total hum it's a ri an I'm issue of soul. that, really clearly, that it's, it's not about the Chinese, it's about greed and capitalism and neoliberalism. I agree. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah in fact I I use the word China but actually what is China? It was transformed by the Hong Kong and and Shanghai Banking Corporation in 91. And what was a communist country, not that it was a very nice one. What was a communist country suddenly became capitalist. It opened up to massive investment. The investment flow to China prior to COVID was 200 billion a year. Post COVID, 400 billion. So, I, I just want to end with a, a, little, a little graphic because we, we, we struggled to get this. Uh, um, the, the Kogi tribe in, in Colombia, these are their mamas, these are their shamans. Um, and <clears throat> The message of the Kogi, which was in 1990 and it influenced a lot of us, wake up little brothers, It's all about the right relationship to the land. I don't know how to get this to advance. Oh, there we go. Right relationship to the land. Um, Net zero is global, as, um, as we saw all the governments have signed up for it. Now, we've exhausted our hydro reserves. We couldn't build much more. This is planned hydro in wild places where indigenous peoples live. That's a hydro dam in uh, Brazil. You can hardly see the people, they're so small. Indigenous people live there and you know how they're treated. This is Southeast Europe, the last areas of wild rivers many national parks, those are landscape sacrifice dots, Um, hydro dams primarily. In Colombia the indigenous people are protected and the primary forest is protected but the people in between who are not indigenous and the kind of mixed race and so forth and they live like peasants, 400,000 acres were cleared for British biofuels. And it now has one of the biggest displaced persons uh, problem in the world. Fracking nightmare. So many people saying, oh, we just need to frack. That, that's a that was really my, my turning point when, when I was trying to introduce the idea of soul and healing, and the healing forest to the conservation community. That's a very, very difficult task. <laughs> but in that process, the, when we're doing the landscape work, this is Richard Fraser's work, we visualized, that's a landscape of say, somewhere like West Wales, we also did an Eastern landscape, I won't show sure all of them, And so what we did was to look at how it could be developed insensitively. So turbines on the hilltops, uh, commercial forestry, forest residue power stations. Um, The alternative, it's got a mind of its own. The alternative, sensitive development, low profile power. There's actually a power station there turbines not on the tops of the hills, all, all kinds of things where you could take care. And one of the elements of that was get the turbines out to sea in much more space and you can't see them and so forth. And actually the government listened. This project went to every county council in the land through the countryside agency. And it, it could have gone further as a tool for each community, we could even do that here. Each community to map what it has in the way of its landscape, its biodiversity, its communities and just see what it can actually fit in. What the technologies are, what are their consequences, what are the supply lines, where is it coming from? At the moment we are offshoring the soil damage. You go up to Cadbury Hill and you look at Somerset. It's not a turbine, um, we're offshoring that to the communities in China that are having to build and do this, they've been moved off their land into cell blocks. So what's the answer and I have to say, it's not easy, it's not easy at all. We have to uh, change our lifestyles. But most of you have already done that. And if the rest of Britain lived my kind of lifestyle, which is pretty yogic, the economy would collapse. There'd be millions of people unemployed. There'd be riots on the streets. So I'm, I'm stumped, to be honest. I don't think science has the answer. What, I, what I'm working on is... How can we be resilient? Because the, the, as, as Ralph pointed out, and anyone who's seen the figures knows, it, it, it's a fantasy. It can't work. It's going to collapse. The whole thing is unstable. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do we as human beings stabilize ourselves? And well, we have got to get away from this emergency, fear-based, Uh, manipulative world that's trying to do what it's doing and I'll end on one note because I I really feel strongly about this. The American professor showed a graph of um, carcinogenic damage and distance from a telephone tower mobile telephone tower and it didn't get down to normal until you were 500 meters away In the church there's a tower and fifty meters away there's children playing every single day. So we need a rebellion and if there's I know there are members of Extinction Rebellion here, oh for God's sake. Get a brain. There is a real ecological and spiritual emergency on this planet. I'm an ecologist, it's real. But climate is not the issue. There is time. There is time. And Extinction Rebellion needs to refocus. We need that energy of the young people. But please, don't fill them with fear. very much. That was um, an amazingly heartfelt um, presentation and thank you so much. That was incredible. Wow. <laughs> People got tears.